Welcome to Fintech at Kellogg, a podcast that sheds light on the innovative people, ideas, and technology that's transforming the financial service landscape as we know it. I'm your host, John Cambers. Today, we sit down with Doug Russell, Managing Director of Mass Mutual Ventures, a $200 million fund that focuses on various sectors, including fintech, cybersecurity, data analytics, and enterprise software. Prior to helping launch the fund in 2014, Doug served as Mass Mutual's Head of Strategy and Corporate Development. Doug, first and foremost, thanks for taking the time out of your busy schedule to join us today. John, it's great to be with you. Look forward to the conversation. I thought we'd start by just having you take 30 seconds or so to describe your current role. Sure. Um, as you mentioned in the introduction, I'm uh, one of three partners at Mass Mutual Ventures. We're a U.S.-based uh, corporate venture capital fund focused on investing in financial technology and enterprise software businesses. We've been up and running for almost four years. As I mentioned, I've got two partners. We have two associates. We've made um, over 20 investments in our first three and a half years, and we manage just uh, just about 200 million U.S. dollars. So I want to dive into your career path a little bit. Taking a look at your resume quickly, you've had an outstanding career, and it's incredibly interesting. Uh, but instead of having you start at the beginning and, and walking us through I thought it would be more interesting just to hear about one or two of the moments that you would consider to be defining moments of your career. Yeah, well, again, I've been working for many, many years now, so <laughs> there's, a, there's a couple, I think, though, that stand out. And it's interesting, different, you know, different stages of one's career, um, when you go through it, it doesn't necessarily seem defining at the time until you know, maybe there's a little bit of time and distance from when the event actually happened. I think two, two for me stand out. One is um, in my late 20s, I was with a small investment firm, and several of us made the decision to leave that company and start our own little investment business. And fast forward three years, I left that company that I started, and it was defining for a couple reasons. Defining one is that on, on one level, it could be viewed as not successful. I had a falling out with one of the partners um, in that fund or in that firm. But with the benefit of time, I look back and realize it was probably one of the most valuable experiences, one, to start something at such a young age, two, to actually struggle with you know, the business for a couple of years and learn from it, because um, I think that's informed how I've, where I've spent my time in other parts of my career since then. So that'd be one area, defining area number one. The second was about 10 years later, I had the opportunity as working for Aetna's international business and I had the opportunity to move overseas and, and operate and lead um, a life insurance company in the Philippines for three years. And for a number of reasons, that's incredibly defining. Uh, number one, I had an opportunity to live overseas. Number two, is the first true real operating role for me versus uh, finance roles or, or uh, corporate uh, staff roles. And I learned a lot about myself working half a world away from uh, our home office headquarters, which is in Hartford, Connecticut. So those two stand out. Uh, for different reasons, but were very meaningful and, and in many ways have led to you know, partly why I'm doing what I'm doing today on the venture side. So you mentioned that you started off in that first experience, you were in investments. And then I know since 1995, 1996 or so, you've been in the insurance industry. Did you know right out of your MBA program that you wanted to be in insurance one day, or is it something that just evolved over time? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, actually, when I graduated from business school, I joined an investment company that focused on the insurance industry, of, of all things. And it was really more by happenstance. It wasn't any grand plan or grand design. And candidly, at the outset, I thought, oh, my God, insurance, how boring could that be? And here I am 30-plus years later still in the <laughs> industry. So it really was, um, and candidly, it was, an, it was a 
the it was one of the great opportunities I had coming out of business school in terms of the role. It actually was a small venture fund that had been set up in 1986 by this firm called Conning and Company, and so I joined their venture team. And then over time, just you know, sort of fell into and stayed in the insurance business. So I moved from these investment roles, the first I'll call sort of ten years of my career, into the operating roles for 20 years, sort of 1995 to 2015, before coming back to venture. Well, that, it, it's really interesting how that that tends to play out uh, over the course of a career. Yeah, and again, it's you know it's sort of the benefit of looking back now that I've been at it for a while. But it's interesting. I, I think there's some. Each one of those steps were very foundational. As I mentioned, you know, the first couple of roles were very, very classic sort of transactional investment banking, investment management. Again, focused on the insurance industry, so learned a lot about deals, doing deals, structuring, uh, and then the, and then I moved into the into the operating role for a number of years. I I joined Aetna first as the CFO of their international business before moving to the Philippines in an operating role, and from the time I joined. And in the in the operating role, for the next 12 or 13 years, had a variety of different operating responsibilities before joining Mass Mutual just over 10 years ago. The, the main audience of this podcast, as you know, is uh, incoming MBA students and current MBA students. And a lot of conversation right now revolves around what you want to major in. So either I'm going to be a finance person, or I'm going to be an operations person, or I'm going to be a strategy person. You've kind of done all three. What have the benefits been of, of getting experience in those different roles throughout your career? Well, again, I think the word is the operative word there is experience. I think it's context. You know, there's nothing like being in different types of roles. Both, again, the the investing side, what I'll call the transactional side, being in larger companies in a staff role, called a chief financial officer. I was head of operations for a couple of years having P&L responsibility as head of the Philippines. I've had different types of jobs in different types of companies. And what, what happens with those different types is you learn a lot about yourself. What, you know, what kind of role really motivates you? Um, what kind of environment really motivates you? Is it, a, is it a job that requires change every day? Is it a job that has what I'll call BAU, business as usual, characteristics to it? Do you like working on new assignments or, or businesses that have been going for a while? So, and again, you don't know that as you're going through it, right? The first, the first few jobs you take because your instincts tell you this is what I want to do. I had, before going to business school, I had spent a couple of years on Wall Street in one of those classic analyst programs. And, you know, back 35 years ago, you know, we were, you know, we didn't have computers at the time even. We're basically compiling presentations for the more senior people on the investment banking side. So I thought I wanted to be an investment banker. Uh, initially. And, and what about the size of the firm that you thought you wanted to work for? When, when you say you wanted to be an investment banker, did you imagine yourself working at a, a big bank or a smaller firm? For me, I was very reticent about joining a large company, and yet here, 24 years later, 23 years later, I'm, I've been working for large companies. But I've been able to find small teams, small small divisions that are either undergoing lots of change or the role changes every day. So it's, I've, been, I've married the um, ability to work for a large company, which I like, with finding you know, opportunities where there's change every day and then working with small teams. So it's almost the best of both worlds. But you know, again, somewhat fortuitous, somewhat lucky, being in the right place at the right time. And so that's sort of where I am right now. It's really interesting to think about you know, working in what feels, I'm sure, is a very small team, but part of a much larger company. 
Um, you know, I know my own personal experience, I, I tend to bucket those ting- things in two different groups. I'm either going to work for a startup in a small team, or I'm going to work for a large company. Or it sounds like from, from your experience, you've been able to kind of marry the best of both worlds there. Well, again, somewhat, somewhat fortunate. And I think part of that gets to recognizing when, when you join a company, whether it's large or small, uh, what's important for you to learn in those first couple of years in that particular role. Uh, and to me, if I had any advice to give, and that's always dangerous to do, is, is to really try to get a sense of what motivates you in that particular role. And then also to think about different jobs as foundational, foundational roles. And it doesn't mean that you're not contributing in a meaningful way right away with an organization. And again, today's world is very different than when I got out of business school or even went to business school. But um, it's, can, you, can you build your personal balance sheet through taking different jobs that actually you know, re- really create value for yourself but also value for the organization that you're working for? So I was fortunate, I think, to have had the different types of uh, roles I've had, but I think the other factor that happens is external events happen, and, and external events drive change. So, you know, in 19, I'd been a year out of business school when the first you know, big stock market crash of the 80s occurred in 1987, and living through that was very, you know, very healthy because you're working for an investment company. So you start to learn what it's like when when there's you know, massive down downturn in the equity markets. So living through external shocks, I think, helps as well. Two of the larger companies I worked for went through mergers. Uh, two companies, uh, Aetna was acquired by ING, and then several years later I was working for Cygnus Retirement Business, and we were acquired by Prudential. So I was able to actually you know, operate through an acquisition. And I think what I found, at least, is very motivating to be involved in those deals. And so a lot of this is, is trying to figure, get, put yourself in a situation or in a position where you can learn about yourself if you're lucky enough to in a job. Yeah, that's that's incredibly fascinating and, and really good insight. I think that a, a lot of uh, students, again, current students and, and incoming students will will get a lot out of that. I, I want to dig into this idea of risk a little bit, you know, given the fact that you've had such a, a long and, and robust career to this point, you'll, you'll have some good insight on, on risk. And the, the first question I want to ask, I'm really stealing, um, stealing from, it's a, it's a question that Tim Ferriss asks a lot on his podcast, but I really like the question. And it revolves around failure. What he calls it is, is a favorite failure. So, you know, throughout anyone's career, long or short, there's going to be times when you fail at something and if, if you're taking the appropriate amount of risk. And sometimes you really want something uh, badly and it doesn't work out. But in hindsight, that ends up being the best possible thing that could have happened. Do you have any experiences like that in your career where you really wanted something to work out for whatever reason, it didn't work out, but it ended up being the best possible thing in the long run? Yeah, it might come back to where we started, which is, as I mentioned, I had joined a firm called Conning & Company coming out of business school in 1986. Three years later, five of us split off of Conning to form this firm, Northington Partners. And you know, we started, uh, you know, again, the idea was we had two institutional research analysts, two of us were investment banking and and venture capital types, and then we had a gentleman running the firm. And I worked there for just over three years and struggled. The the firm began to do quite reasonably well. We raised outside money. We started generating revenues. Um, But again, I think I was just sort of wrong place at the wrong time. I didn't have enough experience, I think, to really meaningfully contribute and just had a slightly different sort of opinion with some of my, my partners. 
that happens, but it, going through it for the first time, you really start to question your own self and your own ability to perform. And the best thing for me to do was to resign, which I did, and uh, without another job. Uh, and I was fortunate enough to find a really interesting role pretty quickly. So that would be number one, and I'll come back to that in a second. I think the second one, again, back to the international experience. I mentioned mm-hmm. the opportunity to move overseas and run a business in, in Asia, which is in the Philippines. And so there's a terrific, again, a terrific opportunity there. But two and a half years in, Aetna's U.S. business was struggling. Their healthcare company was struggling, which precipitated the sale of the international business to ING, which then precipitated um, me moving back to the U.S. because ING had a business in the Philippines and also had a country manager that was one year into his, his contract where I was in my third year. And the reason that on, on one level would look like a failure is a year later, ING made the decision to leave the Philippines. And so here I spent three years of my life and career building a business in the Philippines and one and a half or so years after um, the acquisition and me leaving the Philippines, ING exits the Philippines and the businesses that we had operated were essentially either shut down or sold off. So on one level, you could look at that and go, wow, you know, I'd really hope that that business would grow and I'd be able to look back and say, well, I had this great opportunity to build this business and look where it is today. You know, I spent three years there. And yet four years after I joined um, the company in the Philippines, it was gone. So on one level, it could look like a failure. uh, But on another level, it's an incredible learning experience because, again, it was a first true operating role for me. I was the CEO of the company. I had an opportunity to live and work in another culture where, you know, the Westerners are minorities. And so it, again, was a terrific learning experience that then contributed to, you know, you know getting another job after that role with Aetna. Back to the role with uh, Northington Partners, I think that, you know, again, you don't start a business thinking it's going to fail. So that was a huge disappointment to me. But the real learning there was, thinking about how teams work and effectiveness of teams and how important not just someone's pedigree or experience or skills are on a piece of paper, but really how do the teams work together. And again, I was quite young at the time, and so didn't really realize that or appreciate it. So on one level, it could be viewed as a failure, but on another level, incredibly uh, instrumental in what is very, very important to me over these past number of years is, is putting teams together, working on teams, and and trying to figure out you know, what makes a team work and what makes a team not work. Yeah, I was just going to comment on how um, I'm sure how valuable that experience was, especially with the work you're doing now. And it's actually a good transition to, to talk a little bit about the fund. So uh, what is Mass Mutual Ventures? We are a financially-minded, return-oriented corporate venture fund. We sit between the Mass Mutual operating businesses and our asset management businesses, Bearings and Oppenheimer funds. We operate very much like a private VC. We have an investment committee that meets monthly. We're very rigorous around sort of the three aspects of doing transactions, sourcing deals, investing, and then managing our portfolio. As I mentioned, we have we're, we run a $200 million fund. We've invested almost $100 million of that in, you know, across 20-plus companies. So it's, um, we typically invest at the Series A stage, although we've done later stage deals and several seed deals as well. But the idea is, um, you know, to invest anywhere between three to seven million dollars in these businesses, and that includes reserves for follow-ons. So we're really a startup ourselves as well. We're looking to build our business for the long term, but we very much are a, a young and early fund, and we think this whole 
um, space, if you will, of financial technology and enterprise software, which would include you know, big data, security, cyber, mm-hmm. is really an interesting place to be investing today. So um, can you give some examples of, of some of your more recent investments? Yeah, we've got it. Yeah, well, again, um, for anyone that's interested, I'll put a plug in here. You can check us out at www.massmutualventures, massmutualventures.com. Um, I, could, I think I'd highlight a couple, and they, and they may not even be the more recent ones. One is a, a fascinating one that's a largest startup called Tuition.io, Tuition.io. So Tuition.io has come up with a, a way to work with employers to consolidate you know, the debt of an individual, but then have the employer build a match to that student debt into a benefit. And so much like a 401k plan where an individual contributes on an individual basis, the company will match that up to a certain percent. Um, Tuition.io's program is to work with companies to have them build a match you know, into that business. So that's an example of, of a company that is, we think, you know, very, very important um, uh, idea, and it's one that we think, um, we hope will be successful, you know, for the long run. Another company, sort of, a, you know, again, it's more of a enterprise software type deal. It's going to One Inc., which is an enterprise policy administration payment company that's built in the cloud. And you think, oh my goodness, that's you know, every large company does that today. But it's interesting to see, you know, the the inefficient processes of legacy businesses, and so. One Inc. right now is focused on the property casualty business, but it's a company that's grown from a couple million in revenue to last year almost 30 million in revenue. We invested with a couple of other interesting uh, insurance uh, venture funds, AXA, American Family, and some private uh, growth equity companies. And this is a company that's really helping um, agencies and insurance companies improve their efficiency and effectiveness and cost structure. So many of the deals we're seeing recently are not uh, completely you know, innovative new business models, but are being built to help existing legacy businesses improve the way they operate. Another interesting one we've done is a company called Insurify, which is a, so think of it as a digital front end, where um, they, they're provided, they buy leads and they market online, and it's, it's a way in which sort of with a couple of clicks you can get automobile insurance. That's their primary product right now with a picture of your license, and this is a combination of thinking about using you know, digital technology as well as big data to be able to very quickly underwrite an individual without long, cumbersome process. So you think again about insurance, you think dull, boring, cumbersome. And so it's a business that's looking to streamline and improve the customer experience as well as the efficiency of underwriting and then ultimately issuing policies. So those are three examples. We've also done several companies in the in the big data and the cyberspace. Uh, one of my partners has a deep expertise there. Again, all of what's happening with you know technology and data and moving data. You know, you can't pick a paper up today without reading some issue about a breach. So we think there's lots of opportunity there. Continue to focus on that sector as well. And how many total companies are in your portfolio? We have got 24 companies in our portfolio. And what is the, uh, just just interested in this, what is the average deal size for those? Right around $4 million, but it varies everything. We've invested as little as 700000 up to $7 million. When we invest in earlier stage companies, the dollar amount of the investment tends to be lower, but we're reserving for follow-on investments. One of the really important characteristics, are, and that's not so much value-add, but it's important for a venture fund is to be able to participate and support a company through their growth. 
So if we're investing in the earlier stages, we tend to be reserving two or three times that amount for follow-on investments to participate either on a pro rata basis in subsequent financings or potentially uh, if we've um, developed a good enough relationship to take a more meaningful stake in a subsequent financing. But when it's all said and done, you know, ideally I'd, I'd have you know, 20 to 25 companies in my portfolio for every $100 million under management. How much autonomy do you have in making these, do you and your team have in making these decisions? Well, so as I mentioned, we have two partners, but we also have a, a, an outside investment committee, which actually comprises myself, our chief investment officer, a very senior uh, investment executive from Barings who leads their private equity investing, and then the two most senior operating executives other than our CEO at Mass Mutual. Um, although the, so the investment committee is, is technically and, and officially charged with approving transactions, uh, it really a- operates more as sort of an advise and consent committee to weigh in, provide feedback, ask questions. So my two partners and I, you know, will not bring a deal unless all three of us agree on, on that deal. And so we've not had our investment committee turn a transaction down, but that's because we've done our work. And we've also will preview a deal a month or so before we're, we're done with our work to draw out any questions or concerns or issues that a member of the investment committee might have in terms of the business, you know, the ability of the management team to execute in that business, the, uh, the term, structure, valuation of the transaction. Uh, it's interesting, though, we've had several situations where we've gotten our investment committee to approve the deal, and then as we have completed our confirmatory diligence, we've actually chosen not to make the investment. We're trying to set ourselves up in a way that you know, we have the responsibility and the authority and then use that investment committee, as a, you know, again, as a, as a group of advisors to help us think through the, the opportunities that we're evaluating. So just following up on that, what, what would be some reasons that you might back out at the last minute? If you think about the, where we're investing, we tend to be investing in companies that have either just built their product and have started to commercialize it or have commercialized it but are looking to materially scale it. So mm-hmm. it's really about determining as best we can our judgment, the ability of that company to really grow the top line. And then in growing that top line, they're going to be consuming cash, right? So you look at revenue growth, and then you look at cash burn. So then it's, it's partly uh, you know, assessing the technology and the capabilities of the product. So there's, there's a technical aspect to the diligence. And then it's really being very clear about you know, how and where the cash is going to be spent. You know, if, it's, if it's a scaling situation, that tends to be around sales and marketing and distribution. If it's a slightly earlier where you're moving from a pilot phase and looking to you know, begin to ramp sales in the earlier days, it's, it's maybe more about the scalability of the product. Can the product handle you know, the capacity of going from you know, two or three enterprise customers to 20? So it's, it's in that final, very detailed phase where at times the pipeline that's been represented to us isn't as robust as, uh, as it really is when we finalize our diligence. You'll find, as you well know, John, you've got recurring revenues from SaaS, and you have con- you, know, you tend to have implementation revenues that are one-time. Mm-hmm. We sometimes learn that the revenues are more one-time than recurring. We're walking that fine line, and we want to bring the deal for approval early enough so that we can commit to the company to finalize diligence but not wait so long as we miss it. So sometimes it's a, a question of timing, too. We just haven't gotten as far into the diligence as we should have. And given the size of your fund and the fact that there is a connection there to, to Mass Mutual, which is a well-known uh, name, uh, how many companies are coming to you a year? 
Well, again, boy, I'd love to say they're coming to us. I think, you know, given that we're a young fund, we still are primarily sourcing the opportunities on our own. Now, uh, with the network we've built with other investors and the network we've built with other with deals that we've done, we, you know, we're beginning to have you know, referrals come in. And as people begin to, you know, we've gotten good press about what we do when you know, CB Insights or other publications talk about you know, the insure tech or the financial technology investors, particularly corporate ones, we're fortunate enough to be named because we've done a number of deals. So we, I would say the mix of inbound versus us outbound marketing is still probably a third to two thirds inbound to outbound. If you, you know, more established funds that have been at it longer and have a better visibility into, you know, the sectors they're investing and candidly the performance, it's probably the reverse. You know, our aspirational goal is to move that needle over time and, you know, be in a position five, ten years from now where we're, we're recognized as a leading financial technology investor, irregardless of whether it's a corporate venture fund or a, or a private fund. You know, and I've heard that, that there may be some hesitancy on part of, of some startups to be connected to any sort of uh, established corporate business or, or, or corporate VCs in general. Uh, what, what are those initial conversations like? Well, you know, again, that's a really good that's a really good question because it's evolving. I think well, there's a couple of things. One is you go back four or five years ago, there were largely no insurance company CVCs. There were a couple. I think we were the second or third largest, or not largest, second or third formed. And you know, the the trail is littered with CVCs, corporate venture funds that have started and pulled back. And so there is a reticence still with dealing with corporate venture funds. Historically, it has been around. CVCs looking for ROFRs, rights of first refusal, or wanting terms that were not commercial terms. That has largely changed. Um, and that arose primarily because the CVCs of the past, many, were looking to make investments and then looking, looking for an opportunity to acquire that company. So you know, the priority rights or the benefits to CVCs have largely gone away. The other challenge for CVCs is, is some will be, you know, when we all will struggle. We'll lose money on certain investments. And then if the corporation decides to pull the fund, um, the reputation is that, okay, when the, when the uh, times get tough, the CVCs pull out. So how do we know they're going to be there? So we have to overcome that. And that will just be through time. I think you do see of uh, the funds that have started in the last four or five years a real commitment. But, again, we haven't hit an air pocket yet. And when we do and start taking write-offs, It'll be interesting to see how we respond. So we try to position, not try, we commit to our investors that, you know, you know, we are we are a fund structure. We operate with a commitment from Mass Mutual to this fund, and so we're not going anywhere. But again, we're going to have to prove ourselves over time. I, I want to put you on the spot here for for a second. So you're in those those initial conversations, and you have to give a thirty second pitch of how Mass Mutual Ventures is going to add value over time. What do you say? We say a couple things. One is we are talented, capable, high-quality investors. You know, we know how to make investments. We know how to work with management teams in building their businesses. We work well with other investors you know, along the way. We take board seats or board observers, so we act, we're active, but we're active in the right way. So you'll find us very thoughtful and, and committed to helping you build your business um, from the investing standpoint. Secondly, we're going to commit to you that we're going to help you grow your business beyond just acting as a board member by providing access, if and when appropriate, into the Mass Mutual operating ecosystem. You know, many of you are looking to have companies like Mass Mutual as, as a customer. We will help broker those introductions 
and help you uh, facilitate or foster an ultimate commercial relationship. We'll also do that not only with MassMutual, but with other insurance companies or key financial institutions you're looking to uh, secure as customers. While clearly we would like MassMutual to benefit from the services you provide, we're looking to help you build your business well beyond just MassMutual as a customer. And with the vast network that we've got over the number of years that we've been operating, we open those doors as well. We're, we're very active in helping you. you know, over the next three or four years, where do you think the fund goes? Well, again, as I mentioned, we've um, we have 200 million under management. We've we've largely invested the first hundred millions, and we're sort of on an operating or on an investing pace of four to five deals a year, 20 to 25 million dollars a year. I think over the next couple of years, we'll continue on that pace. I think um, we hope to see perform you know good performance. We our our portfolio we've not had any realizations yet. So ideally, if you fast forward four years from now, we will start to see some exits, and the exits will be generating attractive returns. And we're also evaluating ways to potentially expand the platform beyond just the United States and, and take it global. So we're working strategically to think through how we might take Mass Mutual Ventures, which is, again, largely a U.S.-focused fund, and broaden it uh, beyond the U.S. border. And what about Doug Russell? Where's Doug Russell three to four years from now? I'd love to say on a beach, uh, <laughs> one of those, you know, with a straw and an umbrella on it. But uh, I love, I love what I'm doing, as you yeah. know. I'm having too much fun, and I'm having fun for a variety of reasons. To have the um, privilege and and opportunity to meet entrepreneurs every day, and and work with you know largely young executives that are looking to do new and interesting things is is hugely motivating. And then secondly, to work with the team that I work with. Uh, my partners and associates that I work with here, as well as my colleagues across Mass Mutual and in our external network, again, is, is highly motivating. So I hope to be doing what I'm doing in four years, maybe doing it a little better, though. Two last questions for you, uh, very, very quick-hitting qu- type questions. Now, you graduated from Tuck, you know, now have been a... a, a... 30, 32 years, John. But, yeah. <laughs> I was trying to dance around that, but okay. So th- 32 years. Say you can go back to talk, uh, to talk and teach a class, and not necessarily a, like a one a one night seminar, but actually like a full full credit class. What class do you teach, and why? Well, I guess the first question would be the answer would be why would Tuck ever do that? No, but um, <laughs> you know, I I, um, I don't know whether this is a full course class, but I've alluded to it a little bit along our conversation today. Is uh, something in the space of, of effective teams? You know, what makes effective teams and why. Whether that can be built into a full class, I don't know. But, you know, again, I've had the, I've had the benefit and privilege of working with a number of people over these years. And it's fascinating to me. I mean, you know, the you know, intellect is important. Uh, work ethic is important. Um, being lucky is important. Uh, the environment or the, or the types of business, you, the type of business you work uh, for with or the market in which you operate is important. But to me, um, trying, to, trying to figure out the challenge of constructing teams, being effective with those teams, is, is a really interesting topic. And it's one that's very nuanced. Uh, it's not a math equation. I know a lot of work has been done on it. But to me, that would be a really interesting class to teach. And I think you would be a great pick to teach a class like that. Um, so one one last question. Uh, I just wanted to to know: Do you have any advice for graduating students? Right, looking back at your your career now, right, you're 32 years out of your MBA program. 
what what do you wish you can go back and tell yourself then and and you know what advice do you have for for students graduating this year moving forward yeah again i'll be a little flip initially and it's always dangerous to give advice to really smart capable people um i think i think the advice i would give is 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 try as best you can to figure out what motivates you as opposed to what you think should motivate you and that's not easy and it doesn't it won't necessarily happen that in the two years you, you'll be at Kellogg it won't necessarily happen in the, in the first couple of jobs that you have out of Kellogg but I think trying to understand what makes yourself tick and why is is really important I mean I, I was pretty naive I was very young uh, when I got out of grad school and it, it took a while to really learn about about myself in the working world and heck I'm learning I'm still learning today so I think the advice would be, as best you can, you know, with all that comes at you every single day in terms of the opportunities that you have, um, really try to carve some time out to figure out what makes you, what, what motivates you and why. Well, Doug, I, I think that's a good place to leave it. So this was uh, this was great. Thank you so much for taking the time today. You bet, John. Thanks for asking me. We hope you enjoyed this interview with Doug Russell. If you want to know more about fintech at Kellogg, you can reach us directly at fintechclub at kellogg.northwestern.edu or come check out our Facebook page. And if you liked what you heard today, please remember to rate us on iTunes and click that subscribe button to hear future episodes. That's it for now. Thank you for listening. Until next time.